Is it possible a cur can lend three thousand ducats? Or shall I bend low? And in a slavish voice, with bated breath and whispering humbleness, say this, Fair sir, you spat on me on Wednesday last, you spurned me such a day, another time you called me dog. And for these courtesies, I'll lend you thus much money. I must like to call you so again. To spit on you again, to spurn you too. If you would lend this money, lend it not unto your friends. For when did friendship take a breed for barren metal from his friends? Hmm? But lend it rather to your enemy, who if he break, you may with better face exact the penalty. Why, look how you storm. I would be friends with you. And have your love. Forget the state that you have shamed me with. Supply your present wants. And take not a drop of interest for my monies, and you'll not hear me. <laughs> this is kind I offer. <laughs> this is kindness. No, this kindness I will show. Go with me to a notary, conceal me there your single bond, and in a merry sport. If you repay me not on such a day, in such a place, such a sum or sums as are expressed in the condition, let the forfeit be nominated for an equal pound of your fair flesh to be cut off and taken in what part of your body pleaseth me. of our interesting times it is my pleasure of dr e michael jones back on the show of course uh to my audience he needs no introduction but i'll do it anyway he is the host i'm sorry he is the um the editor of culture wars magazine culturewars.com the author of many books including the most recently published the dangers of beauty the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts uh dr jones how are you doing this evening good tim good to be here well thank you for coming back on the show well, uh, I don't know. I think you have an article in next month's um, Culture Wars that might touch on the, not this particular topic, but a related topic. And perhaps you'll maybe you can fill us in on it, give us the highlights of that article. Uh, but recently there was this uh, dust up or controversy between uh, uh, Stephen Crowder um, and Ben Shapiro's uh, Daily Wire. Uh, and I wanted to have, have you come on the show to talk about this as an example 
of uh, of Jewish capitalism, and this is a how the dispute kind of highlights the strategy, the Jewish strategy of leveraging financial power to take over society more or less. Um, and and this is perhaps the inevitable result when when our when a society forsakes God and worships Mammon. Um, so uh, Crowder versus Shapiro, what's the story here? Well, first of all, uh, when Crowder opened uh, up this can of worms, he said, uh, uh, well, I'm, uh, I, I got this contract. I'm not going to tell you who it was with, uh, but we're really talking about conservatism here. And there's a big battle in conservatism between big tech, uh, big con and little con. And big con is associated with big tech. Well, at this point, we are totally befuddled. I mean, what is going on here? Uh, here first of all, we have to establish uh, a principal fact here uh, that conservatism means absolutely nothing. Okay, it's a designation, a category of the mind that gets applied to keep you stupid. Uh, and this was an example of it. So at that point, suddenly, um, I think it was Mark Dice was the first guy who said, oh, it's the Daily Wire. And then uh, the, the guy boring uh, from the Daily Wire actually got on and started uh, talking about it himself. He said, yes, it was for the Daily Wire. And then he started going through the contract uh, line by line. Now, at this point, it turns out that uh, Stephen Crowder was offered $50 million for three years. Well, that's for doing YouTube videos. Well, who can argue with that, right? And this was basically the line that Mark Dice taught. You know, like, just shut up and take your money. But uh, when you look at the contract, uh, this is what Crowder was upset about. Uh, so I, I think I think he is greedy. <laughs> he had an agent. They wanted a lot more money, and they were trying to leverage this, and I think they were trying to intimidate. It backfired on him because the Daily Wire got furious at him. But once the Daily Wire enters the thing, then, then we got something else we can go on. It's not just about conservatism. It's about the Jews. The Daily Wire is a Jewish operation. It's made the, the figure, what should I say? The, 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 uh, the galleon, the, uh, the, the, the lead guy is Ben Shapiro. Uh, and uh, so if you don't have, it depends. See, it's a category problem. We're always running into category problems. You got the, the category conservative, which means absolutely nothing now. Uh, but the one thing it does mean is it's, it's a prevents you from saying the word Jew. And this is precisely what uh, Crowder did. And it's precisely what Ben Shapiro does. So when he showed up at the Right to Life banquet, he gave this long, boring speech, preaching to the choir, telling him how they could refute pro-life arguments didn't address the biggest issue since the overthrow, overthrow of Roe versus Wade, which is basically that 140, now 400 Jewish organizations have said that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. So when I walked up to the microphone and said that, you could feel the tension in the audience because, you know, polite people don't talk this way. We're all in this together, aren't we? Blah, blah, blah. But so you got conservatism, which is meaningless pretty much, uh, it goes to the highest bidder. And so uh, if the Koch brothers uh, put their money behind it, then they determine what conservatism is and you become a Koch sucker. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you have the category of reality, which is the Jews, which is 
constantly in dispute. And the whole point of conservatism, as I said, is to not say the word Jew. And the whole point of the Daily Wire and what Ben Shapiro is doing is not say the word Jew. Constantly transpose what are ethnic religious battles into uh, battles on the political spectrum. So, so that's that's what happened. Once once that cat got out of the bag, then we had something to go on, because uh, cate- now you have a category. I can't tell you how important this category is, and it, the proof that it's important is that Jews don't want you to say it. They don't want to use that. The the the, the line that Dave Chappelle used in that uh, famous monologue now on Saturday Night Live was, "There are two words you should never put together: the and Jews." And everybody laughed, but what we're talking about is a significant category of reality that allows you to understand all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't understand if you were deprived of that category, which is precisely the point of conservatism, precisely the point of the Daily Wire. Now, you can go on. uh, Jordan Peterson apparently just signed a big contract, probably bigger than this one, with the Daily Wire. And you can say, uh, Jew, he says it. He tells you how the uh, Israelis have a right to occupy Palestinian territory and steal their property. Uh, So you can use it, but you can't use it in any explanatory or negative way. So that's what happens. So since I have the category, uh, you know, a little bell started to ring and I'm saying, uh, where have I heard this story before? Oh, wait a minute. I just did an article on this. And the article... Uh, is about Jack Nicholas. Now, what does Jack Nicholas have to do with um, conservatism and what whatever? Uh, what does this? Have, what does he have to do with that? He's a golfer, isn't he? Yeah, he's a golfer. So, how does how does this fit in? Well, it turns out that there's an article, uh, a lawsuit, just filed, uh, and uh, Jack Nicholas. Uh, was similar to doing what Crowder did. He uh, he had finished his career, he had retired, and he decided to find out how much he was worth. He, not only was he uh, win, did he win every tournament, probably made a ton of money doing that. He also had a, a business where he designed golf courses. So not, how much am I worth? So he fire, hires this group of people, and they came up with a figure of $295 million dollars. Okay, now that's fine. I, I think it I, reminds me of the man in the Bible who had a big harvest and decided to build two barns. Maybe uh, you should leave well enough alone here, or maybe you should share your wealth with the poor or something like that. But anyway, he decided to monetize that. Now, that there's all sorts of significant economic issues here. Uh, is money an accurate uh, indicator of wealth? Are money and wealth the same thing? Well, the dictionary says they are. Uh, I don't think they are, though. I, I think that there's a distinction here. Uh, wealth uh, is uh, more lasting than money. Money is ephemeral. But anyway, Jack went for the money. And so someone pops up willing to give him 150 million dollars and his name is Howard Milstein okay uh, so great you're going to give me and it's for 49% of the 
whatever this thing is called, the Jack Nicholas Corporation, let's call it. He had a name for it. Well, Jack thinks, great. How can you argue with $150 million? Three times what uh, what uh, Crowder was offered. And so he signs a deal. And here is the, the nub of the issue here. This is a long, complicated contract. And it's, I'm going to say, here's another category that we have to deal with. It's a predatory contract. Uh, there are lots of things. Predatory contracts have a long history uh, with the Jews. They're associated with usury. Uh, we could talk about the predatory contract in literature, in which case we're talking about Faust. Uh, the Faust story, Dr. Faustus, Christopher uh, uh, Marlowe's play. Uh, Goethe did a, a Faust play, and we're talking about basically the emergence of the money economy and its borrowing money and its usury. Well, it turns out that part of the contract that Jack Nicholas signed had clauses like this, and I don't know, I guess he didn't get, get anybody to read it because he started complaining that basically I had no idea of what I signed. So anyway, part of the contract is if such and such happens, then kind of like the one that uh, Crowder got, uh, if uh, and it turns out that the if did happen right after he signed it, the recession hit the Great Recession of 2007 2008. And at this point, uh, Mr. Milstein comes back and informs Jack that, oh, by that way, that $150 million, it was a loan actually, because you didn't read the clause here. And uh, by the way, uh, your company now has to pay us 8.5 percent on this loan. And by the way, you also signed away saying something, saying the fact that um, oh, we get first dibs on your money. So the first 12 million that comes in from the Jack Nicholas Corporation goes directly to us. And if there's anything left over there, well, you can have that. So suddenly uh, uh, Jack, Jack is upset because what we're talking about here is a predatory contract. Just like the, I think that Crowder's contract was predatory. I think that what, what he was basically signing on to was uh, if you get deplatformed, we take the money back. Well, how the hell can you know whether you're going to get deplatformed or not? Especially when you're in the business here of being controversial in some sense or other. Yeah, the rules always change, as we know. Yeah. So the rules are constantly changing here according to this contract that nobody can figure out. These contracts are so arcane. By the way, Mr. Milstein who who decides the rules? What 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 category? What group? Yeah, the, of course the the Jew who yeah. writes the contract, of course. Mm -hmm. And guess where he went to school? Harvard Business School. Okay, uh, so this is where he learned how these how to do these predatory contracts. That's where he learned how to do it. So at some point, uh, Nicholas wakes up and realizes, "Hey, this guy is in total control of my life." I, I mean, literally. Literally, he recognized at a certain point, uh, you know, this is Jack Nicholas. They're, they're guys calling up. Hey, Jack, remember me? Yeah, sure. I remember you. Well, Jack, I'd like to talk to you about a golf course project. Jack is not allowed to talk to this guy until he asked the Jew Milstein for his permission. So at this point, uh, at this point. Nicholas discovered not only that he had no control over the organization that he founded, he also discovered that he had no longer the right to talk to potential clients. Once Howard 
had made permanent, had met once Howard, Howard Milstein, had made per, taken control, permanent control of the country. He acted, and this is what Nicholas is saying, he acted as if he owned me. This is in the affidavit that Nicholas mm -hmm. Much more than a pound of flesh. A pound of flesh was good here. <laughs> this, this is, Nicholas goes on to say, he tried to control every aspect of my life, from what I did to whom I spoke with, to where I went as if I was his property. I always tried to be respectful, but there was no respect in return. I also tried very hard to make the relationship work, but it became increasingly obvious that I aligned myself with a person who didn't respect me as a human being. So on November 23rd, this is the article, this is good, quote, a Manhattan judge, close quote. Now, what do you think that means? <laughs> Why do you think Bankman Freed left Jamaica and wanted to be put on trial in New York? Uh, on number 23rd, a Manhattan judge sided with Milstein and effectively ruled that Nicholas cannot use his, quote, own name, image, or likeness in connection with commercial ventures in which I am involved in the future, close quote. <laughs> he's 82 years old, and he's the victim of identity theft. This is the predatory contract here, and if you if you don't have a category called uh, the the Jew, you can't understand it. Now, why do I say that? I know I'm so, I This is whenever you say something like this, someone's going to say this is the category of your mind. This is not there. The, the word Jew did not show up once in this. Sports Illustrated article that I'm quoting here. Not once. So you're left to infer this on your own. Of course, it, it, it's true. Uh, so why? So it's a category of my mind, and it's an indication that I'm an anti-Semite, right? Right? You've heard this before, right? Yes, yeah. Well, it's pattern recognition. Okay, so, so I'm, a, I'm a guy who has spent his whole life forming categories. You know? And that's, they're all locked up in my brain, some, my mind somewhere. And I remember another book that I was reading, uh, which had something similar, very similar. And it was called Jews Must Live. And it's by uh, a man by the name of Samuel Roth. Uh, and you probably never heard of Samuel Roth. He goes, no, can't say I had, no. Okay, he's famous, or he was infamous, because he was probably the 20th century's most famous pornographer. <laughs> he spent nine years in prison on uh, for uh, selling pornography. Was he the was he the figure in the Roth decision, or just that just another Roth? Yeah, it is. That's exactly okay. There you go. So I have heard of him. Okay, there you go. Okay. So, so he was a a pornographer, which means you're a publisher. And uh, two of the most famous books he published were Ulysses by James Joyce and Lady Chatterley's Lover by D. H. Lawrence. Well, this is a significant guy. He, he shows up as a character in Joyce's uh, Finnegan's Wake. Uh, but why is he significant? Because he sort of tells it from the inside. So now we're going back, uh, eight, what is it, 80 years now? Back to Samuel Roth, who wrote this book about how Jews cheat you. That's what the book's about, because he got cheated by Jews. The Jew... He got cheated by Jews. 
so he, he goes, this is what he writes. He says, um, to my innocent brain, it appeared that the whole purpose of a Jew in business was to get the best of the goy. When the goy had been cheated, business was good. When the Jew had come out even, business was very bad indeed. For the greater the harm he had done in a business transaction with a joy, the deeper uh, appeared the narrative delight of the Jew to whom I was listening. Now he's talking about conversations he's had with Jews. And then he goes into detail about exactly what happened to Jack Nicholas uh, and what could have happened to uh, Stephen Crowder if he signed on with that with that predatory contract? So basically, uh, he goes into the story about there's a, a, a Mr. Hanley, who's a, a furniture manufacturer from the Midwest. The Jew comes to him and says, uh, "Would you like to double your business?" Well, what businessman is not is going to say no to that? So at this point, the, the Jew says, "Well, okay, you, you, good idea. Let's get together. I know someone who will lend you money." Up. Oh, there's the problem. And so it goes on and on and on and on in the detail. One uh, story after another, he lends some money. It's a long, complicated story. If you want the details, read uh, this month's issue of Culture Wars magazine, where I go into the details here. But wh what is the point? What is the point here? He, the guy loses his business. The Jew ends up in charge. Exactly uh, uh, ex it's exactly the same thing that happened to Jack Nicholas. Exactly the same thing. And this is the guy who's writing 80 years before the whole thing happened. So the final, the culmination of one of these stories is that Mr. Linton had a farm. Uh, the, the money, uh, he borrows money to uh, do something on the farm and gradually he falls in arrears on his payments and the Jews take over. Uh, but they don't want to keep him. They don't want to kick him out. That would be nasty. So he could get to live as a servant on his own farm, which is now owned by the Jews because the Jews need service. They don't work, so they need someone to run the farm. That's how it ends. And it said, um, this is how, this is how um, Roth puts it. Someone had to be dispossessed so that his relations might have a home. Linton realized with a sinking heart that he really had no chance. His whole life had been lost the moment he crossed Levy's threshold. He had been dealing not with a man, but with a whole people. Do you realize how significant that is? Because what he's doing is substantiating the category, right? In other words, this is not just Mr. Milstein. It's not Mr. Shapiro. It's a culture, a culture of pre predatory contracts that they have mastered over centuries and can basically dispossess anybody who's stupid enough to sign uh, up their contract. This is this is precisely what Crowder was involved in. You're not dealing with a man. You're dealing with a whole people or what I would say the category called the Jews. And if you don't understand that it's a category and you don't understand you better be wary, you'll end up like Jack Nicholas, the ultimate dumb goy who doesn't even know his name anymore, own his name anymore, can't even talk to someone unless he has the permission of Mr. Millstone. And still struggling to be polite. Yeah. Worrying about, you know, how it looks.
Yeah. So I think yeah. I think that's what's going on here. Now people, it's been broken down. They're you know the back people siding with one side or the other, but I think that's the gist of what happened here. Yeah, it is interesting. You point out the difference between money and wealth. Of course, uh, money, of course, is just a uh, well. Ideally, it's there to uh, uh, facilitate exchange, you know, way uh, above beyond barter. Exchange, store value, and store. Yeah, of course, money it can be weaponized, especially the currency. Especially if the currency is debauched, you know, it becomes a, a, a tool of wealth extraction as opposed to wealth preservation. Right. Yeah, so under the current system, that's what it is now. Yeah. Let's let's go back to the, the moment uh, that Jack had been waiting for. He's there. He he has the check for one hundred fifty million dollars. He's seventy some years old. Jack, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do? Buy toys. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. Go go to Walmart. I'll take one of everything. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, Adam Smith dealt with this in the uh, in the Wealth of Nations. He talked about the Highland Lairds who uh, uh, had men at their command but didn't have money. This is the landed aristocracy always had this problem. You have uh -huh. land as a source of wealth, but you need money. And so uh, he said that he exchanged his, uh, his men for uh, a pair of silver buckles on his shoes. And they have diamonds on them, too. That's what he said. So what's he saying? He's talking about luxury items. He wanted to buy luxury items. Maybe maybe Jack wanted to buy luxury items. He said that he wanted to, you know, I don't know, help out his family or something like that. It was anyway. The only sensible thing you can do with 150 million dollars is invest it. And what do you mean by invest it? Well, labor is the source of all value. So you have to find a a machine that will turn labor into money. Now that's called a business. Well, he already had a business. He had he had a thriving business of building golf courses. Well, what's he going to do now? Find another business to invest in when he already had this makes no sense. And in this discussion, you start to see the difference between money and wealth. Wealth uh, is uh, what you need. Labor is the source of all value. You need something that, as I said, that's going to turn labor into money. That's known as a business. So you have to find a business. You have to create a business. And then you generally have to use your own labor uh, in one, some way or another to do this. You can buy stock in a company, something like that. There are all kinds of instruments you can use. But ultimately, it's all going to come down to something like uh, buying labor, buying someone else's labor and, and uh, getting a return on, on your investment. That's what it's going to have to be. So why did you do this? It's like, I really, you know, you 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 cut down the apple tree uh, because someone gave you a, a lot of apples. Well, what happens after you've eaten all the apples? Then what? Well, you're going to, you got to buy some more. Whereas if you had the apple tree, you could have a, a constant supply of apples. Now, obviously, that requires work, doesn't it? which as I said, labor is the source of all value. So if you want something for nothing, well then, you know, you're, get, you're gonna get into trouble because ultimately you're not gonna get it. The only alternative, and this is the whole gist of my book, Barren Metal, the only alternative to the theory that labor is the source of all value is 
Shylockian economics of the sort practiced by Mr. Milstein and, and uh, described by Mr. Roth, which is basically usury. And so Shylock says, you know, my ducats can copulate faster than Laban's use and rams. And uh, I'd like to lend you some money. I want to be your friend. Again, you have the same pattern here. Now we're in literature 100 years ago. You can go back to Roth. Now we're in Shakespeare. It's the same thing. I want to be your friend. I want to lend you some money. I want to help you out. And Antonio is smart enough to say, if it's breed of barren metal, then keep it. Friends don't lend friends money. Uh, and that, that's, that whole play revolves around, around that issue. This is obviously something that Jack Nicholas didn't know. And Stephen Crowder apparently didn't know it either. You're not just dealing with one man. You're dealing with a people. In other words, a group of people called the Jews, a category of these this group of people that have been doing this for years, centuries. And Roth mentioned that when they get together, they talk about how, you know, how they pulled the wool over the dumb guy's eyes and stole his money. They don't even feel they don't even get satisfaction from making money without exploiting him. Now, this is I know it sounds anti-Semitic, but tell, tell that to Samuel Roth. He was a Jew who was cheated by other Jews. I'm just trying to put all these, link all these incidents into some type of coherent pattern so you can understand it. Yeah, it is interesting that they dangle money out in front of Jack Nicholas or Steve or Stephen Crowder to get them to sign sign their life away in a way, their control over their product or their life or their identity. And it's the lure of money. Um tricks people into into agreeing to something like this and um here is sort of the this sort of the, this an inexorable force of usury and concentrating wealth uh, enables this group to uh, come in and take over uh first the finances and then society in general because that wealth is that they concentrate is then leveraged culturally and politically right. at that point they can control the discourse and uh uh yeah and, that that's, yeah. that's the whole point of the Daily Wire. Let's control mm -hmm. the discourse, which means we, you know, it's like Ben Shapiro, oh, he's invited to the Right to Life group. And the one thing he's not going to mention to the Right to Life group is that abortion is now a fundamental Jewish value. That's because he's a conservative. And if you're a conservative, you don't say things like that. Mm -hmm. That's that's the whole point of that. You know, but but let's let's go back. Let's go back to the contract. Crowder's contract. Let's say... Um, Okay. Uh, oh, you just got banned, Steve. You just got deplatformed. Okay, Google, Twitter, whatever it is. Uh, so we're taking 50% uh, uh, of what we were planning to pay you. Oh, so now we're down to $25 million. And if you keep going along this way, uh, we're going to keep taking more money. And I think that was pre pretty much the thing that uh, shocked him when he read the, the contract. Well, does that mean that... Uh, Okay, so now, let's say we're down to zero now. You've you've pissed off so many people. You got deplatformed, so you're down to zero now. But that doesn't mean you're free to leave. We own you now. We own your name, and so you're going to continue to do what we want you to do, and we're not going to pay you anything. I mean, and, that's and, and another group that's part of this category, like the ADL, will determine what. Uh what uh, causes someone to be canceled or yeah. to be deplatformed. Yeah. It's a rigged game here. Mm -hmm. 
suppose suppose we have the board meeting. Yeah, that's all hypothetical. Suppose we have the board meeting and Ben and whatever the guy's name is. You know, I I just uh, we I've been listening to Crowder. He just doesn't he just doesn't have it anymore. Uh, call up Jonathan Greenblatt and tell him to get on the platform. Mm-hmm. Well, is that impossible to think that they, that something like that? I mean, that's an awful thing to say. I'm sure Ben Shapiro, if he's listening, is ready to to uh, uh, denounce me as something or other. But it is within the realm of possibility. And and you signed a contract where uh, just because we're not paying you doesn't mean you have to work for us. Right. I mean, who knows the way this contract Well, take it to a Manhattan judge, mm-hmm. Stephen. That's what Jack Nicholas did. And he sided with, oh, I'm surprised he sided with the Jew here. You know? Well, we live in a society now where if you don't uh, I think that uh, trans women are women or that maybe you shouldn't take an experimental gene gene modifying mRNA drug, that's not to get you canceled. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, right now, that's that's accept- that's beyond acceptable public discourse as determined by the ADL uh, or like organization. Yeah. Who knew before COVID that you didn't have the right to protest against vaccines? Who knew? Who knew that was a controversial topic? Mm-hmm. And then talk to somebody like uh, Dr. Mercola. What happened to him? Mm-hmm. I mean, the way they ganged up on him, the guys. What's the guy? He was trying to sell. Vitamin D, is that controversial? He's trying to say, well, vitamin D probably provides you with more protection against COVID than the vaccine. Well, why can't he say that? Well, he can't because they, the big pharma and big tech and this, uh, he, I just read the thing today. And then there's a group called uh, People United Against Hate. Well, wait a minute. Now, wait, <laughs> what is vitamin D hate speech? That's a, look, I didn't look into it, but you know, uh, it sounds like a Jewish operation to me. Whenever I see the word hate, I think of hate speech, and that was created by the ADL to shut down any type of discourse that they don't like. Well, that's the thing here. The issue is one, as you pointed out, you spelled out, is the issue of, of the contract, the predatory, unconscionable contract, the exploitative nature uh, of, of the business relationship. That they're so uh, uh, well trained in creating, or at least presenting to to the hapless goy. Um, but the other issue is uh, how they use this contract to determine uh, public discourse, to shape it, to to take over, so they can control what's considered acceptable in, in these debates. So, if say Stephen Crowder were to comment on something, some you know, some egregious act on the part of Israel. In, in Palestine or something, and, and he were to comment on it, then that would be considered. They wouldn't like that, and they could again call up the ADL yeah. to, to come up with some pretext to have him canceled. And again, YouTube is not obligated. YouTube again owned by Google, which is also a Jewish operation, with ADL, um, you know, uh, linked or you know, the commissars there determining what's acceptable. We saw that you know the Twitter files exposes that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, um, so yeah, they can basically there's the, they dangle the money out by you, uh, and then they can control your product, control public discourse, and that's then they're off for the races. That's how that's how we got the Jewish century. That's right. Yeah, that's that's how they that's how they control uh, control the discourse. No, it is. And you talk about usury, and you talk about Jack Nichols, Jack Nicholas, and 
uh, going and finding out he's in debt and wanting the money. And it is uh, analogous to the experience of the uh, British aristocracy in the 19th century Absolutely. and, and how the British Empire was kind of folded into the Rothschild Empire through, through usury. That's right. That's exactly right. And also, I, I keep coming back to the, 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 the literary uh, example is Faust. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I, th I think Faust is about usury. Because I think it's like borrowing money, except that you're borrowing from the devil. Uh, and and there was in the middle of the late Middle Ages in Germany, <laughs> there were things like uh, the devil and the Jew being conflated because it's it's sort of in scripture, you know, when Jesus says your father is Satan, mm -hmm. that type of thing. So it's not too far fetched to say that, the, you know, you're the Jew and the devil are aligned here in this thing. But you signed a contract. Now, at this point, and uh, illegal uh, usury is illegal, and so if you sign a contract that is illegal, it's not binding. Well, that's not what happens when you sign it with the devil. And the whole point of the the uh, the Middle Ages did not accept that traditional term, pacta sunt servanda, which comes from the Roman Empire, which is contracts are to be honored. Uh, because of its, and so the the rising banking industry in places like Geneva felt that they could never trust Catholic princes because the Catholic princes would always renege on their on their debts because they shouldn't have made them in the first place. It's not a legitimate contract, and this led, I think, I think this is the hidden grammar behind the Glorious Revolution. The British wanted a Protestant who would honor usurious contracts, and I think that's what they got with. King Billy, the Dutchman, who wanted to wage war in France. So what's the first thing they do? The Whig oligarchs who brought them over, they lend them money. And this is the whole purpose of the Bank of England, which they started at the same time. That's right. To get right after Patterson sets up the Bank of England on the model of the Dutch Central Bank. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now King Billy can wage war and now everybody's happy and the Whigs. This is what Cobbett said. Once they created the Bank of England, you divided England into two classes of people, taxpayers, which is the majority, and then tax eaters, which are the Whig oligarchs who own the bank. It looks like some type of public enterprise, but no, it's privately owned, just like the Fed. Oh, mm -hmm. wait a minute. There's a pattern emerging here, isn't it? Isn't there? If we if we can't make connections like this, we are always going to be the dumb goy who's going to sign his life away on a contract. And roughly like every 75 years, the system collapses under its own weight. Right. Well, that's the term for a floating loan. Yeah. You can't have a floating loan. At that point, the, the uh, exponential nature of the increase kicks in and it skyrockets. And that's precisely what happened with the Bank of England. So we're talking about uh, 1763. Oh, I know. So Lord Townsend, who is the chancellor of the exchequer, goes to Adam Smith and says, we can't pay off the interest anymore. And so Smith says, I know, we'll get the colonies to pay for it. We'll pass the Stamp Act. And the colonies uh, didn't like that. And that led to the American Revolution, which is pretty much what you have to do when you're in a situation like this. We may be in a situation like this ourselves right now. I, I have this gloomy feeling about 2023 and what's going to happen this year. But this is, it's, in, it's inevitable. 
It's inevitable because of the nature of compound interest and a floating loan. You, and, you, the, the best example I gave in, in Baron Metal was the, the Habsburgs. They, bar, they borrowed from Catholic usurers, uh, the Fugger family from Augsburg. First loan, I think it was in 1494. They came into the possession of every gold and silver mine in the New World, and they went bankrupt in 1555. Now, how can you go bankrupt when you own every single gold and silver mine? Because it's because of the nature of compound interest on a floating loan after something like 70 years. And I think roughly 70, 75 years after, of course, the uh, the Townsend Acts and the American Revolutionary War, you have the Irish potato famine, which was actually aggravated by usury because it was the uh, the indebted aristocracy that had to pay off the Jewish creditors which forced them to forcibly export the food from Ireland right. to make Absolutely. good on their debt. And, of course, Absolutely. the Irish suffered for that. That's right. Palmerston, Lord Palmerston, yeah. classic example, had all these lands. He's an absentee landlord or lord in uh, Ireland. And in order to pay the, the, the usurer, he has to grind uh, the poor uh, tenant farmers there. And to the point he realized, like, I can't afford them anymore. I know, I'll ship them off to, I'll ship them off to America. And they were, uh, the Irish at this time, the time of the potato famine, uh, arriving on Glozeal, Grand Isle. Anyway, that island is in the middle of the, uh, of the St. Lawrence River, where the ships landed, uh, crawling naked into the snow of Canada. They, they didn't even have a, a clothing to wear when they were shipped off uh, from Ireland to, to Canada. So it's it's kind of the unwritten the unwritten history of what's happened been happening here for centuries, and it's still happening. And and Crowder was only a, a recent example of, of the same type of thing. It's funny how they take something like the contract or capitalism, which people associate with voluntary contracts and freedom but hidden within that with usury is is uh, multiple levels of coercion which um, foreclose people's opportunities and, and corner them so they have to make bad choices whether it's going into debt to maintain a standard of living or to keep a roof of your house or to sell yourself into prostitution like in weimar germany yeah and the, this is the and the exploitation then is called free market same way that paul singer talks about it's the free market right it's the market as he uses the court system to extract the pound of flesh from Latin American countries. Yeah, supposedly it was never yeah. a vulture capitalist, as Paul Singer. And by yeah. the way, it was one of those New York judges that made him his fortune with the uh, bad debt with Argentina, mm -hmm. where the whole deal had been uh, agreed upon. They were going to, everybody's take a haircut. You're going to get 10 cents on the dollar. So he buys up distressed debt. And then he toes to the Manhattan judge and he says, they've got to be, he's got to be made paid in full face value. A completely crooked Jewish operation here that inflicted misery on the Argentinian economy. And then- Yeah, it's kind of a replay of that, uh, you write about in Baron Metals, the Don Pasco, Paso affair. Is that where the Greek, um, he's a- a British, a Jew, I guess a Jew in Britain who um, resigned his citizenship, but he had a debt with one of the uh, with Greece, and he had the British Navy collect for him, threatened to bombard. They didn't pay out or something. British Navy. Yeah, 
uh, and uh, yeah, so that's uh, 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 they say he suddenly discovered he was English after all. And <laughs> yes. this is why they had a navy. If you don't pay, if you don't pay uh, yeah. your, our, our debt, you, you don't pay off you know, what you owe us. We'll send a ship in and we'll bombard your your port, or whatever, whatever. That's why they had it. The Jap uh, the navy is uh, Leviathan. Mm -hmm. Leviathan is a sea monster. Uh, the Japanese call him Godzilla, mm -hmm. but basically it's the monster that comes out of the sea. That's the British Navy, and it comes out. It will destroy you if you don't pay off your uh, yeah. debts. And now it's NATO. <laughs> NATO. The American uh Anglo-American Zio Empire. It's yeah. that one. And, and do you know the one thing, the one nut that the British Navy could not crack? It was the Eurasian landmass. Mm -hmm. Uh too far inland, sorry, fellas. And uh, this is precisely the McKinder thesis. And now what you're seeing here is the the end game of the McKinder thesis. By the way, George Friedman just uh, said this. Just said exactly this. He, I think it was he, he used to be called Spengler. He's got his own uh, kind of think tank where he talks about geopolitics. Anyway, he brought up. He said, "Look, the whole Ukraine operation is really about the McKinder thesis, and what you're really talking about is any time that Germany makes an alliance with Russia, we are going to invoke this." And and uh, they did. And I, I think you can make a plausible case that the real goal of this war is to destroy Germany. Which has always been the goal. This, this is the conflict between labor and user, isn't it? Because Germans were the ultimate laborers in, right. in producing wealth. And they were, they were able to uh, basically break out of this usurious thing in uh, any number of different ways. And the man who uh, really broke out of it was uh, that name, that guy we're not allowed to mention, Adolf Hitler. Oh, by the way, today's the anniversary of his rise to power in Germany. Yeah, it was well, 90 year, years ago today. Yeah. <laughs> we're sure. recording on January 30th. Yeah. Yes, I can hear the champagne corks pop <laughs> ADL. <laughs> to Adolf Hitler, without whom we would not be what we are today. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, th again, these things, it wasn't just a, um, that issue wasn't just the 12 years that Hitler reigned over Germany. It's the whole several actually centuries. But, yeah, it was that McKinder thesis. Germany became a problem after 1871 when they unified. Right. And you, you, had the, you had the trade union there between Germany and this productivity. And it started to challenge British economic financial power, which is actually with Rothschild financial power. And uh, so it had to be broken up. So you got the, you got the Thirty Years' War in the twentieth century. We call it World War One and World War Two. Right. No. And, and Hitler, after uh, he he brought in shocked work during the Weimar Republic. He's the one who orchestrated the inflation as a way of paying off debt. And then Hitler brought him back. And then the second time around, shocked restarted the German economy without one piece of gold. First time he tried to borrow some gold, uh, the English Montague and uh, uh, Norman, uh, the guy, the head of the, the Fed in America, went along with it. Second time, they're not, now we're not going to give you any money. And he jump-started the economy, got Germany out of the Depression purely with labor. That's all they had. And so it became, you suddenly understood 
the the ultimate value of money or what is money ultimately it's credit based on the future labor of the nation guaranteed by the sovereign that's what it did and so germany started pumping money into the economy to build the autobahn then to build armaments and they dragged the whole uh, german economy out of the recession something that roosevelt could not do first of all because he had an idiot um, Morgenthau, who didn't know anything other than to how to lick jo uh, Franklin Roosevelt's boots. They were friends. They were neighbors in New York. Uh, did nothing on the economy. He was a total, had the reputation of being a total idiot. No one would know the man's name if it weren't for the Morgenthau plan, which is the only thing he really came up with, which was how to starve Germany to death by deindustrializing. Mm -hmm. But the, 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 what came out during this period of time is that Hitler proved, I hope that someone listening here, they're going <laughs> to, he proved that labor is the source of all value because he resurrected the economy on German labor alone. And German labor was very valuable mm -hmm. at this point. Probably the best labor in the world. I don't think that's an exaggeration. It still is. That's why the country tried to destroy it. That's why that's why the United States starve it. This is so the, the hidden grammar, this is you Eugipius said this, but basically other people are saying it in Germany. So the real point of pressuring Olaf Scholz to send tanks to the Ukraine is basically they're all gonna get destroyed, and then you're gonna have to buy tanks from us, and then you will destroy your own armaments industry. This is the whole point, and the Germans are going along with this. I, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. Same thing with the liquefied natural gas, right? When they blew up the pipeline, which Tori Newland last week was gloating in front of the Senate about it. Yeah, to Cruz. Cruz is on board yeah. with this too. This is an act of war against the German people and the docile German people are going along with it. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's One thing, again, what this points out, again, is obviously we're talking about the sort of the force of usury and able to leverage, to take over uh, an economy and then leverage it uh, culturally and politically um, is, again, this what they do is they, they turn around and they regurgitate this ill-gotten gains to control public discourse institutions. There was a recent uh, article I came across um, here, let's see here, at Harvard's Kennedy School. Um, Kenneth Roth, who ran Human Rights Watch, of course he's Jewish, was um, he ran it for nearly thirty years, and he be was uh, offered a senior fellow position at Harvard's Kennedy School uh, until the dean Douglas uh, Elmendorf turned him down. And apparently, this was a, res a result of pressure from Jer various Jewish organizations because uh, Human Rights Watch has been very critical of Israel and pointed out human rights abuses and uh, war crimes, and so they, uh, it was immediately withdrawn. Um, now, the, the Kennedy School of Government is funded largely from uh, Leslie Wexner. I know him from... Oh, where have we... Where have we... <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein, him. infamy. Uh, yeah. Another one, Robert Belfer. Um, again, uh, these are people who have tied into the American Jewish community, ADL. David Rubenstein, he's another uh, 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 Jewish uh, uh, billionaire who's... Uh, he, I think he's one that's like causing... He gave money to like uh, Monticello and other uh, historical sites and, and turned it all woke. And a lot of racial agitation with slavery. 
He's the man behind the Carlisle Group. Yeah, the Carlisle Group. And there's buildings named after, uh, I guess, a shipping magnet, Israeli shipping magnet, Ofer, David Rubenstein, and Leslie Wexner. But it was funny because the offer was withdrawn after pressure. Again, uh, Kenneth Roth is Jewish, but uh, he's, a, he's a critic of Israel. Let's, and, let's, this, this is good because it allows us to define our terms better. Okay? Yes. Like Samuel Roth, he was a Jew too, right? Yes. Spill the beans. So what do we mean when we say the Jews? The Jews. Does that include every Jew? No, well, obviously not. No, yeah, no, obviously not. It's a political entity is a political mobilization of this group, uh, which is basically run by big, influential money Jews who get to determine the political agenda of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Jews uh, can often get the ground under the juggernaut if they don't go along. Mm -hmm. Roth, uh, now there's another Roth. Or uh, was the guy Mordecai Vanunu, right? <laughs> Another one. Oh, well, there's an article written about this. I think it covered, I guess, pointing out the um, the role of these Jewish benefactors or billionaires, uh, uh, philanthropists, if you will, in uh, bringing pressure to bear on the Kennedy School government to withdraw the offer. And of course, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt pops up, ADL's, and he wrote an article, of course, condemning the anti Semitism. He says, typical anti Semitic tropes. Uh, that infect journalism. <laughs> I think Michael uh, Massing was the uh, journalist, but this is what uh, David uh, Jeffrey uh, Jonathan Greenblatt wrote. He goes, the article further devolves into Jewish uh, maker name dropping. Leslie Wexner, Jeffrey Epstein, Robert Belfort, David Rubenstein, and notes their supposed close ties to big Jewish organizations. What it's an expert case of classic anti-Semitism? It's not the leadership of the Kennedy School government that made the decision. Oh no. It's the powerful money Jewish elite that really influenced these things behind the scenes. In short, the article plays in the classic anti-Semitic trope of Jewish power and control without providing any evidence that any of these Jewish donors or groups played any role in influencing the decision to derail Ken Roth's fellowship. So there he is. <clears throat> Again, I guess Jonathan Greenblatt is so, I guess, very uh, sure of his own intelligence and his fellow tribes members' intelligence. And, of course, everyone else's stupidity in believing that Tens of millions, on hundreds of millions of dollars in donations don't reflect the decisions taken by the Kennedy School of Government. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just, I, I did a, a, a interview with uh, Iranian TV with a guy I'd met over there, and there's a series of people, you know, and uh, there's a report in, uh, I think it's Memory, you know, the Jewish operation, this, mm -hmm. and uh, it's going on, and then they get to uh, Ron Unz. And they're going about how this guy's an anti-Semite because he, <laughs> wait a minute, you forgot to mention he's a Jew. You know? that, that doesn't count as anything anymore. They wouldn't even mention that he was a Jew. Because... I guess Norman, Norman Finkelstein's an anti-Semite too, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. So, the, the, so you have to keep this in mind. It's like the, the time of the, the Jews killed Christ. You know, that's a true statement. Does that mean every Jew in Jerusalem shouted crucify him? Does that mean the Blessed Mother and the beloved disciple, St. John, yelled crucify him? No, of course not. When you're talking about the Jews, you're talking about major Jewish organizations, you're talking about the Sanhedrin, whatever it's called at, at this day, uh, who control the political entity known as the Jews mm -hmm. uh, for their benefit. Yeah, and it gets that category. And conservatism is there to make make to so we make that categorical error categorical error and we can't name name the, the group the people you know that uh, that sam roth was writing about dealing with the people 
dealing with a people. That's exactly yes. what we're talking about here. Yeah. A group that is mobilized politically with wealth and power who set the agenda, no matter what the little Jew thinks about it. And that wealth of power is accumulated and utilized for social uh, political causes like, um, you know, gay marriage, abortion, um, uh, 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 you know, promoting sodomy. Uh, 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 now, you feel war and you had nothing we're, we're you know we're 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 flirting with nuclear war because of jewish influence in the state department and That's in our right. treasury department the sanctions um, office is a jewish operation sanctions yeah. office at the treasury the, that is alienated uh, 40 percent of the world's population is now under sa sanctions thanks to the jews and the in the in the treasury department and when the dollar collapses because of the petrodollar all this pressure we won't be able to blame them because that's again we're not allowed to make that categorical issue. No, because you yeah. don't have the category. You're not allowed to use that category mm -hmm. unless mm -hmm. you say, like Jordan Peterson, that Jews are intelligent. Now, okay, <laughs> okay, then we can use the category. You know what I mean? Uh, or, or uh, Jews are victims of the Holocaust, and at that point, make the check out to me. So the that category becomes real because the German government has to sign it. That you know, yeah, uh, who who endorses that check? Yeah. <laughs> where does it go yeah where did it go well, it didn't go to norman finkelstein's parents that's that's clear no 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 now it is um yeah you, you jordan peterson a great example of someone who's you know, been offered i guess uh some money and now he can't talk he actually said that on stage i can't i can't talk about it i can't <laughs> i can't do it he said and yeah. the question they got he got asked was did you read solzhenitsyn's book 200 years together mm-hmm What's wrong with that? You're not, you're not allowed to read the book. You become unclean because you read the book. That shows you the fear. That, uh... But he is talking about Logos, right? <laughs> <laughs> Did you see my article? Yes. Yes. He just, yeah. Good. Well, then you saw the inside conversation. The, the... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I read that. And uh, it's interesting. There, he had a, there's a video of him talking with Ben Shapiro and, um, and, and what's the guy, Ruben, the homosexual? Yeah. I think they're talking about Logos. Like, what does a homosexual know about Logos? <laughs> yeah, it's I a little mean, confused. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was giving I was giving Jordan Peterson the benefit of the doubt. You know, I mean, good. Go. He's telling kids to clean up their room. Mm -hmm. But then he goes, not only is he going to give a speech they, uh, on Logos, they fly an entire class of people to uh, Ephesus. Yeah. And he puts them up in front of that building. And then he opens his mouth. And the first thing out of his mouth is a category mistake. And then it just goes from bad to worse. The more he talks, the worse it gets. You know, so when, when moments, one of the few moments where you can actually understand what he's saying, he goes from a category mistake then to from stupidity to blasphemy when he starts talking about God uh, and uh, chaos. In the beginning, there was chaos, right? Is that what the gospel is? But that's not St. John. <laughs> Jordan, stop. <laughs> Yeah, looking at his cell phone. He, can't, he was looking at his cell phone the whole time. Suddenly the, the light goes up. Jordan, shut up. <laughs> this is Ben. Don't say that. But uh, he did. Made a fool out of himself. Said in the beginning there was chaos, which is the exact opposite of what St. John said. He said in the beginning there was Logos. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was never chaos. Never chaos. And this is blasphemous to associate chaos with the mind of God. Yes. Which is what he did made a complete fool out of himself well yeah well that's like there's never nothing because there's something and something can't come from nothing so that's right that's yeah. exactly right 
but that yeah, it's yeah it's uh then he starts talking about call young and like what are you talking about <laughs> you're losing me here <laughs> i think that's one thing that formed his mind which was carl jung who was a, yeah. an alchemist he's part of that hermetic alchemy tradition and uh, doesn't believe in the principle of non-contradiction mm-hmm. so he gets away with it with his mandalas and all this other type of stuff but it's you know how is that going to form your mind well Jordan Peterson is proof that his mind is not formed. Well, the big issue here, at least from an American standpoint, speaking as an American, and the, the, our our current political crisis, what's happening right now, and all the insanity, clown world nonsense that we're seeing, either to distract us or just drive us all insane, make us more confused, and is the um, our system of government, our constitution, our uh, is. Um, one thing that made it functional was that America enjoyed sort of, the, uh, sort of a pan-Christianity, which formed the public order, moral order. And it was, uh, I think it was John Adams who said that our Constitution presumes the existence of, of a moral people and no government can function without it. And the Jews, and we talk about the Jews as a group, is because the, their Jewish revolutionary spirit and the war on Logos is they're as a group, they've made war on morality. Absolutely. And public order. And so when you're dealing with our political crisis, our financial crisis, everything stems stems from the moral crisis, which they as a group have been promoting for the better part of a century in the in the United States since since the late 19th century when they came over from the parallel settlement. Is that a, a fair summarization yep. of the problem? Exactly right. And they lure you summation rather. They lure you into a trap with sexual liberation. You know, they give you a permission slip to act on your illicit sexual desires. And they call it freedom. And you think, this is great. This is great. I can do whatever I damn well please. Until you wake up and you're uh, addicted to pornography. And then suddenly you realize, well, wait a minute. We still have rules. It's now, it's not the moral law. It's the rule of the powerful. Truth is the opinion of the powerful. So if you have money now, you make the rules. That's how they do it. And that's the that's the problem. That's the, exactly the situation we are in right now. So it was sexual liberation that destroyed representative government, because now we have government one dollar one vote, and they buy up Congress. IPAC buys up Congress. If you don't go along with them, they will buy up someone who will uh, uh, defeat you in the next race. That's how we were led into slavery mm-hmm. by repudiating the moral law. Because the only thing that the little guy has is the moral law and, uh, as the basis for the civil law, where you can stand up to the man who is rich and powerful and say, you can't do that. It's wrong. It's wrong. I don't care how much money you have. It's wrong to kill, to commit to the sin of abortion. It's wrong to do this. It's wrong to exploit people. That's the only moral force that we we have. That's the only force we have, and it's a moral force. And if we give it up for uh, uh, the ability to screw whoever we want, uh, we will be their slaves. That's exactly what happened. We don't have representative government anymore. We have rich rule by the rich and for the rich and of the rich. And that's it. If this was something that America was always vulnerable to because America has always been about pursuing well, one thing is pursuing happiness, that is pursuing money, and those who control the money can use it as a lure and a trick, and that's kind of what we see in American history. 
from the get-go i mean starting with hamilton's you know bond fraud with the uh the whiskey rebellion to the manipulations of the you know the bank of the u.s first and second bank of the u.s and culminating in the creation of the federal reserve system in 1913 which was the huge coup and it's been one i guess it's and they, that's where you have you know usury institutionalized and it's an, it is a with compound interest it, it's an inexorable force that's that right. we're seeing yeah so it becomes the hidden grammar of things like the separation of church and state or the fact that we don't have an established church or the fact that you want to weaken religion because that is what puts moral force in action. You have to have the Catholic Church as a defender of the moral order. But if you mm. uh, uh, put them all, proliferation of sex is good. Sex, S-E-C-T-S is good for the oligarchs because they they it weakens the moral force of religion and once you weaken that the power of money becomes more and more important mm -hmm. which is the situation we're in yeah and again, you see that with people like jack nicholas or perhaps crowder who are being tricked by money crowder didn't sign i don't think he signed the contract yet but then Money people are interpreting that as look, he's giving, he's he's being if a, he's being offered all this money, which somehow outfits like the Daily Wire apparently have a limitless source of. I wonder how that works. Where They're not just it, selling mugs, are they? T-shirts. <laughs> where did Howard Milstein get 150 million dollars to hand out? And that, of course, he took it all back. Where mm. did where did uh, uh, the Daily Wire get 50 million dollars? And that's probably small compared to what they gave to Jordan Peterson. Where is all this money coming from? Mm -hmm. Ad revenue on the Daily Wire? I don't think so. I don't think so. They have access to this money. They use it. They lure people into a trap. Then they take it back slowly. Oh, you got deplatformed. Sorry, we're not paying you anymore. But you still have to put out your videos or what happened to Jack Nicholas the so and so on and so forth. That's well, vulture capitalists like Paul Singer and Les Leslie Wexner will give, you know, uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions away to get uh, uh, leverage or control of the culture. And this is where, whether it's Monticello or Daily Wire, you know, or any other media outlets, you know, or, and, or CBS News or Hollywood, you know, and so they're very good in spending their money uh, in ways that, that serve, you know, their perceived interests, you know. Yeah, good at getting it, throwing it out there and then getting it right back again. Yeah, so, well, I think we covered, do you think so? I think I said I had it for an hour or so. Yeah, yeah, that was good. That was good. We got a lot of cards on the table here. I, yeah, hope, so I hope people are listening and hope pay attention. This this is a a, a warning signal, and Crowder was the guy who, who started this whole conversation. Yeah, $50 million seems like a lot of money, but if you break it down, it isn't because he has like 25 employees. But also, uh, it's not a lot if you, if you, in essence, sell your soul to get it, lose your independence. And Chris all back. Yeah. Because you got deplatformed, or because you got a strike against you on Twitter, they're easy enough to orchestrate. That the, the the double standard on Twitter is the the guy who objects to you is always right. The guy who uh, issues a complaint, he's always right, mm -hmm. and you don't have any way of replying to these people. Now, I'm, well, I I think that Musk has reformed this time up, but that is the rule on the internet. Yeah, but uh, big techs are full of your Roths. <laughs> These commissars, these degenerate commissars. That's right. There was, right. and, and there was end up being Jewish for some reason. <laughs> so, again, that category, that group. Well, Dr. Jones, I want to thank you for coming back on the show.
Thank you, Tim. It's always a pleasure. Of course, culturewars.com. Subscribe to the magazine. You can get it either in Dead Word version or PDF emailed to you every at the beginning of the month. Uh, of course, uh, your uh, your uh, latest book. Right. And also, a lot of what we talked about tonight is in uh, Baron Metal, uh, History of Capitalism, yes. the conflict between labor and usury. The whole mm-hmm. idea, those two alternatives go back and forth. It's the history of how they interact with each other. And that, again, yeah, the idea, culture, I'm sorry, go ahead. Culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. Book is available there. Great. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Let's go. You, have a, you have a nice evening then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.